0: Context and most people think that Paul wrote several letters while he was in jail while he uh, wrote Philippians, but um, I've been enjoying our, our time in it. I hope you have too. Um, lately, have you noticed football? Yeah. Football's been coming up, so it's still preseason, but as far as I'm concerned, it still counts. So um, I follow the Seahawks. Go, Seahawks! Okay. <laughs> too much, Walter. Um, I think I mentioned last week that I played football um, for my school when I was in seventh grade. Is that true? Did I mention that? I was too probably young. Seventh grade is probably too young to play football. I was also too small to play football, but I did anyway. I tore my hamstring quite early in, in a practice, but. Um, I did actually have a chance to play. I played twice. Um, One time was on a kickoff because the coach couldn't find the right kid to go in, and I was standing next to the coach like this. And he was like, where's, where's, Oh, just go. And I was like, like Pepe Le Pew, where he sort of bounces to where he should go. I was so excited, and I didn't know what to do, and I just ran. I was like, ah! um, which is why I never played. Um, the second time I played was um, also because the coach couldn't find the same kid, and I was standing there. And he said, oh, just go in there. And I actually, I got an interception. Um, so the ball came up, and in junior high, when the ball goes up, everyone just runs to where the ball is headed toward, so it's like everyone forgets what they're supposed to be doing. And it was actually headed toward me, so I saw everyone coming, and so the ball was coming, and I just went like this, and everyone's hands went up, and then it just dropped right in my gut, and nobody, and everyone was looking around, and I was sort of, I don't know if I was hiding it on purpose, but I was sort of hiding it like this, and I was like, And then I started to run. In any case, I was not a good football player. But I loved playing. And so if you've ever played a team sport, you know there's nothing quite as powerful as being on a team. And knowing that you're one part of a larger thing and you're all trying to do the same thing together. And that I'm a part of this system, and and he's got my back, or she's got my back, and and here we go. And we're all trying to do the same thing. And I've got my specific role and my job to stand here and let the ball fall into my my belly. Um, But everyone's got their responsibility. And you take care of your thing, and I take care of my thing. And in doing that, I take care of you. And we're all trying to get a touchdown, right? We're all trying to do the same thing together. Team sports is... I think, uniquely powerful in how it shows what can be done with unity, when we're united together for a purpose and in a cause. Um, and also just knowing that you're contributing to what everyone else is, is getting from this, I think is really powerful. Well, this morning we're going to talk about living in Christ together on a team and what that is supposed to look like biblically. Uh, Paul's been writing this letter. He's writing Philippians from prison. He's writing to the Christians who live in Philippi, who he loves dearly, but prison hasn't got him down. He's still got a really good attitude, even though he's in prison. Um, he thinks he's pretty sure that he's right where God wants him to be because he's been faithful, and so he said—this is verse 20, Philippians chapter 1, verse 20—he said, whether I live or die, Christ will be exalted in me, because if I die in prison— then I will get to go to be with him in heaven. And if I live through this, then I will get out and I will exalt Jesus. So no matter what happens to me, Christ will be exalted in me. Essentially, what's the worst that could happen? Heaven? That's not so bad. But then he said that he's convinced that God will free him from prison because he's got more work to do. Particularly, he's eager to get back to Philippi to help with their progress and joy in the faith. That's verses 25 and 26. So we pick up his letter where we left off last week. Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter one. We're gonna be starting in verse 27. It's on page 980. If you're using the Bible that's under the chair and it will. it's in your outline, it's also gonna be on the screen. So pick your poison essentially. I'm gonna go back a couple verses so that we can pick up some context um, before we hit 27. This is verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And here comes verse 27. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So there's some bad news in there, right? There's some great news in there, but there's some bad news in there too. It's a big chunk. Let's... let's, uh, let's go through it carefully. In this passage, Paul, as the author, has shifted his focus from talking about what he's going through to talking about what they're going through and their situation. So he's been talking about being in prison and how he's okay with that and how he's confident. He's modeling to them, right? He's showing them that even though life is hard for me right now, I will still glory in Jesus because whether I live or die— God's having his way in me. And then that gives me confidence that I'm, I'm convinced that no matter what happens, God will be glorified in this. And so he's talking about himself. Now he's talking about them. He says, but for you, um, in the first, the Logan, if you go back one slide, the, he starts by saying only, which is a weird word, but in Greek, it's really to say, um, you know, I'm excited to see you, but just one thing, just one thing. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, this is hard. This is hard. Um, But it's really relevant because Paul has been talking about living in prison. Are you in prison? Do you know what that's like? So maybe that's not really relevant for you to feel like I'm I'm relating to Paul a lot. But now he's talking to the local church. He's talking to the Christians who live in Philippi, who he loves— And he's saying, but now for you guys, I'm excited to see you, but one thing, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now that's a little unnerving to me because I don't think I could ever be worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's nothing that I can do. Uh, Worth has to do with value, right? So if I were to trade you something to say like, I will trade you my partially drank bottle of water for your something. You would have to do some sort of calculus, right? Some calculations in your mind to figure out, is it worth it? Does the value of this bottle of water rise up to the value that I would be giving up? You know what I mean? So is it, how do I be worthy? How can I be worthy of the gospel of Christ, Jesus dying on the cross for me? Well, I just can't. I just can't. But that's what makes it grace because I can't make myself valuable enough that Jesus dying on the cross makes sense. I can't rise to that level. Uh, Those scales will never be balanced. And so what's Paul trying to say here? As a side note, when you're reading the Bible and you read something and go, well, that doesn't make any sense. The first place to turn to is the Bible. Find somewhere else where the Bible speaks to the same issue. If you can, from the same author, at least from the same perspective, the same era, and let scripture speak to scripture, amen? So what we can do actually with Philippians is Paul wrote another letter called Ephesians, and he says something really, really similar in Ephesians. So let's, let's turn there, and we're gonna be reading from Ephesians chapter four. It's in your outline. In Ephesians four, verse one, he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, sound familiar? right? A prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. These two passages, the one from Philippians and the one from Ephesians, are really, really similar, and they show us that Paul was pointing them not back to the cross— but forward to the mission. So when I think, when I read that Paul says, "Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel," I think of the cross, and I think I can't be worthy of the cross. But what Paul shows us, especially when we look at what he said in, in Ephesians, is that he's not thinking back to the cross. He's thinking forward to the calling. He's saying, you've been drafted, we're going by with, with a football theme this morning, if you've been drafted, you've been drafted onto God's team, now act like it. Live in a manner that's worthy of being on God's team. And the team aspect is actually really explicit in the Philippians passage, because Paul used a word in Greek that is, it only comes up twice in the Bible. And it's a word that we that we get politics from, we get political from. And it doesn't mean that it is political, but what it means is that it's referring to the corporate nature of his, of his, of his urging. When he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, he's talking about your citizenship in heaven. He's, he's talking about, As a group, corporately, speaking again to the church, let your living corporately together as a team be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's important for us to understand as we read through the rest of the passage because everything that he says after that is built on this framework of that he's talking about their corporate group teamwork together for Christ. One of those things that he says coming up and that you can see actually in both passages is that he highlights the importance of unity. In the Philippians passage, Paul wrote that he wants to hear that they are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In Ephesians, he urged them to bear with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Both passages that are talking about how to live worthy of the gospel land really solidly on unity. How do I live worthy of the gospel? You live united together in teamwork and fellowship with, with each other. That's a, it's a big deal. So that tells me, and this is, you write this down, this is your first uh, blank. A significant part of living worthy of the gospel is protecting the unity of the church. And again, I'm speaking about the church because he's speaking to the church. He's telling them, live worthy together, the group of you worthy of the gospel by being united together. And there are two expressions of unity that he identifies in the passage. Verse verse 27 features two of them. The first is standing firm together. How, how do we live united? How do we live together? What does that mean? Well, you stand firm together. In the ancient world, when it comes to standing firm together, especially in the context of a battle, and we see that coming up in, in verse 28, where he's talking about the opponents, the opponents who are going to attack you, when you, when you think about standing firm in battle— there was one great show of unity in the ancient world, and it was called the phalanx. The phalanx was a military formation where the soldiers would stand shoulder to shoulder with their shields overlapping or interlocked and their swords or spears plunging through the gaps. It's sort of like a turtle and a porcupine. And they would, they would merge their shields together, all locked in so that if so that if someone hit the rank, they would all uh, take that blow together. And then you would have shoulder to shoulder, very close, and then back to back to back, uh, ranks of people who would, if you hit me, I will go back into my partner, and my partner's got me. And so we're all standing like this. And we've all got each other in, in these rows, and these columns, and that's the phalanx. Um, it relied on the soldiers standing firm together, um, and you'll—I have a, a brief clip so that you can see it in action from a movie, but it works. Dispatch the potions to the goat path. Way to the gods. Nobody tells. Them. Earthquake. No, Captain. Battle for nations. just stopped it before it gets gruesome. Um, That's the the movie 300. The Battle of Thermopylae was um, essentially 300 Spartans against uh, a very large uh, Persian army. And um, the, the phalanx, the way that that was built was to withstand something like that. And it required everyone to stand firm together so that if one piece of the chain breaks, everyone else is there to support it. Does that make sense? So that you know, so that if you have somebody... So for example, if my responsibility is not over myself, my responsibility is really over my neighbor in that situation... And his responsibility is over his neighbor, and his responsibility is over his neighbor. If someone hits me, I take that hit, but so does my partner. He takes the hit too, and so we're all supporting each other, and it makes it makes us really strong. The Bible says that that you know a cord of many threads is strongest. So a a, th- a three threaded cord is more than three times stronger than a, than a single thread by itself. Standing firm together, standing firm together and not giving up on each other is one of the expressions of unity that Paul gives us as a church to talk about how we're supposed to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel by standing together. That means don't give up on the people who are around you. Don't give up on each other. The other part of unity in this passage, which means the other part of living worthy of the gospel, is striving side by side. So standing firm together is one thing, but then when we move, that we move together, that's another thing. That means we've all got the same goal. We're headed in the same direction. This is not a free-for-all. We don't go wherever we want. We do this thing together like a football team. Have you ever seen one of those videos in basketball, for example, where someone will uh, steal the basketball and then go the wrong way? And you go, all we need, right, is to have someone on the team who gets confused about the direction that we should go. Uh, It's disruptive. It's it's not good for the unity of the team. Someone's going to sit on the bench, for example, and then be harassed later in the day. Um, For us standing firm together, and then striving. When we move, we move together in the same direction Is how we live in a manner worthy of the gospel, according to Paul in this passage. Paul's pushing for unity as the primary expression of living worthy of the gospel. Earlier this week, I was reading an article by uh, a man named Tom Rainer, He used to be the president and CEO of Lifeway. So all of the the people who publish the Sunday School material, for example, that we use um, is published by Lifeway. Um, He's written several books about um, churches and and church revitalizing and churches planting. And uh, he famously wrote a, a, a book about church death called Autopsy of a Deceased Church. And he went and looked at lots of churches that had shut down and found commonalities among them. And he wrote in this article about key factors that damage church unity. And I'm going to highlight some. what, What hurts church unity? Number one, he wrote gossip hurts church unity. Which, by the way, means that it is not worthy of the gospel of Christ. Gossip is church members, this is what he wrote, Church members talk about one another instead of talking to one another. Paul calls church members who gossip people who are, quote, filled with all unrighteousness in Romans 1, verse 29. Gossip hurts church unity, amen? Because I need to know you got my back, and you need to know that he's got your back and she's got your back. And if we're talking about people behind their backs, that's not the kind... of that's not the kind of got your back that I need, that we need to have together. I need to trust you. You need to trust each other. Gossip hurts that. Secrecy hurts church unity and is unbecoming of the gospel. Scripture over and over tells us that we walk in light, not in secrecy, not in darkness. For example, no one ever whispers about things that honor Christ. If you're standing in the corner of the church whispering about something, it is probably not honoring to Jesus. Unless it is just a discretion thing, a confidentiality thing, people who are having secret conversations, that's probably not honoring. Bullies, church members who throw their influence around and want to control things are not acting in a way that honors Christ, who told us to lead by serving in Matthew 20. If you're mad about this, by the way, be mad at Tom Rayner. I'm just saying. Number four, negativity. Ephesians chapter four, verse 29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Having negative conversations, being negative about things is unbecoming of the gospel. Amen. And then number five, selfishness. They say there's no I in team. That's true. And here's what, here's what Rayner wrote, quote, some church members insist on getting their way, but biblical church membership is selfless and more concerned about others. Selfishness, negativity, um, bullying, which uh, th- throwing your influence around trying to get your way Secrecy and gossip are unbecoming of the gospel of Christ. They hurt church unity and they don't honor what Jesus did for us. So don't do it. All right. These five things weaken the church and we don't want to weaken the church. Let's be supernaturally united instead. I want to see, I want to think about us like those, uh, those Spartans in that, in that cavern, and there's very few of them compared to the army that's coming. How many of us are in here? About a hundred of us. There's about a hundred of us in here. How many people are in the community who would love to see the church uh, disunited and fragmented and fighting and weak? There's more evil in the world than there's good in the world for us, we need to be powerfully, supernaturally locked in, united, standing firm together, and then striving for the same thing together. When I step, you step. When we step, we step together, and we're moving in the same direction, that honors Jesus. That is living in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. Because really, the battle idea, that's happening— If you haven't noticed it in the world, turn on the news. It's happening. And we have to be engaged in this fight. And it is a fight. Let's move on to verse 28. He says, And not frightened in anything by your opponents. Guys, that means you're going to have opponents. It means people, if you live for Jesus, are going to be opposed to you. But what does he say? Don't be frightened. Be united, be striving together, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This, if you're not scared of them, is a clear sign to them of their destruction. It's like if you walk up to somebody and you try to push them, and they don't seem scared of you at all. They might have a gun, you know what I mean? Or they've got something that makes them not scared of you. When people push us, if we're not scared, it's a sign to them that they've already lost. It's a sign of their discretion, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, God has has granted to you in his grace the ability to believe in him. He has given that to you, but he's not only given you that, that you should believe, go back, go back, okay, that you should believe in him, but also that you should suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw, the Philippians saw that I had, that's Paul, and that he's having in his moment in prison. You've been called to believe and to suffer for the sake of Jesus, You are going to be fought. If you live for Christ, you are going to have a hard time. People are going to oppose you. You will have enemies, and it will hurt you. It will hurt you. But we can't be surprised by that. We can't be frightened the way that the New American Standard Bible translates it, is that in no way be alarmed by your enemies. Expect to be attacked. Individually, yes, but also as a team, as a church, expect to be attacked. When it happens, don't be scared. Don't be alarmed. If we're strong and we don't flinch, they'll know they picked a fight they can't win. But expect it because God's given you faith and called you to suffer like Paul. Despite, (laughs) huh, going back a couple weeks, what the prosperity gospel teaches, which is that God wants, if you're faithful, God will bless you by making you healthy and wealthy and prosperous. The Bible says that God has given you faith and suffering for his sake. The question for us is, how are we supposed to honor Christ in the middle of being in battle in this world? Here's what he said going on. We're in chapter two. Woo-hoo, we made it. Chapter two, verse one. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than, Than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What does he say? How do we live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel? We expect that fight is going to come, we expect to be opposed. We're not surprised by it. And when it comes, we're together. We're together. If you're not plugged into a church, you need to be for your own spiritual health because you need to know people got your back. And as a church, we need to be a place where people know, I've got your back, we've got your back. There isn't gossip happening behind your back. There aren't secret meetings that are happening. There, aren't, uh, there isn't negativity that's just flowing out of the church. This is a place where you are loved and you are cared for, that you are embraced, where we will hold you accountable because we love you, and that we're together when the world attacks. When something happens to you and your family, we're there for you, and we've got you, and we pray for you, and we're locked in. And someone hits us, and maybe I move, but someone catches me. And maybe he moves, but someone catches him. And we've got this because we're stronger together. And then he says, How to live that out is do nothing from selfish ambition or pride. In order to play on this team in a way that honors Jesus, you can't be fighting for yourself. It doesn't work. He says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's not just ideological unity. That's not we believe the same things only. That is, we fight the same fight. That I put you before I put myself. That I fight for you before I fight for myself. That I look out for you, and you look out for you, and you look out for you, and we look out for each other. That's the kind of selfless unity that works in a battle. And it's that, what I'm going to call humble unity that is the key to unlocking the divine benefits of encouragement, comfort, help, and love while we're in this battle. That's what chapter two, verse one is talking about. If you're living for Jesus, the devil will oppose you. He will throw things at you. He will put obstacles in your path. He'll do whatever he can to make you lose track of what Jesus wants for you. And he's really good at it. He's been doing it for a long time. He will try to make you lose track. He will try to make you go to the left or to the right of what Jesus wants you to do. But in the middle of that fight, wouldn't you love some encouragement? Wouldn't it be nice to have some encouragement? Wouldn't it be nice to have some comfort, some love, some affection, some sympathy, some help? Wouldn't you love that in this really hard fight that we fight? Would be nice. The key to that, Paul says, is this kind of selfless, humble unity that we have by being on a team together. Because I know you've got my back, and people are here, and they are, like in the video, that one guy is saying, like, you know, they're shouting out things uh, that are encouraging to each other. But we not only get that from each other, in our unity, we get that from the Holy Spirit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And that's how you get the encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the spirit, affection and sympathy in this fight. Well, God's word promises those things if we walk humbly together standing together and marching forward together, putting others first, and refusing to let your team, refusing to let your church down. That's when all these benefits kick in. And when we do that, honestly, we're walking like Jesus. Because Jesus put us first. It's not in your outline, but here's the rest of the, that passage, Philippians two, starting in verse five. Have this mind, what he just got done talking about, about humility and not thinking about yourself first. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Jesus counted you before he counted himself as in that when he was God, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men because he didn't count himself first. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has given us new life, a life that's meant to be lived together on this team as we consider how to respond to the call, what unity looks like and what humility looks like we look at the cross and we find God becoming like us so that he could save us. And what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to live like that, where we don't count ourselves as the most important thing, where we look out for the people who we love, the people who are on our team, and we do whatever it takes to support each other. And when we do that, The Holy Spirit is there with us, and we are walking like Jesus. We are standing firm together, and we are striving forward toward Jesus together, and we're living like him. That's what we should do. This morning, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together.